Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, do please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We've been following David, the future king, anointed and yet not yet recognized as the king, uh, as he is living as a fugitive from King Saul. And he's been in the wilderness for a good while, living outside of the, the bounds of Israel, really outside of any particular territory, just sort of out in no man's land, if you will. And as the story picks up today, we find David maybe in a spirit. We see the lowness both in how he thinks, how he speaks to himself, and in the actions that he takes. The decisions that he makes in this chapter lead, leave a lot of questions, leave us wondering what exactly is David doing? What does he think is going to happen? And it all seems to be evidence of the fact that David is growing weary, as do we all from time to time. David has been pressed hard by Saul and his relentless pursuit for his life. He's been forced out of the land of Israel. He's been forced to live in caves and hills on the run. And he is growing weary. So we see the evidences of this weary and wavering heart, if you will, at the very beginning of chapter 7. You'll recall that chapter 26 ended with David once again sparing the life of Saul. Saul and his army were sleeping uh, nearby where David and his men were, and David went into his camp and took the spear of Saul, which was beside his head in the dirt, and instead of spearing Saul with it and ending his troubles, instead he held the, the spear up and he said, see, I have regarded your life as precious today, and may Yahweh regard my life as precious in the same way. And so chapter 26 ends with Saul going home and uh, David essentially entrusting himself, it seems, to the care of God. And so chapter 27 begins with David in a very different situation, a different uh, frame of mind, if you will. His heart is wavering. Look at verse 1 of chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So right there in the very opening verse of this chapter, we get a glimpse into David's thinking. What David is saying to his heart. That phrase that opens it, David said in his heart. Some translations actually say David said to his heart. And of course we know that David is in the regular habit of speaking to himself because we have evidence of that all over the Psalms that he's written where he speaks to his own soul, right? 
O soul, why are you downcast? Or bless the Lord, O my soul, is speaking to himself. He's in the habit of doing this. And in this particular moment, and in this particular circumstance, the words that David speaks to his heart are not words of comfort or words of courage or words of truth or trust in God. They are words of despair. David said to his heart, I will surely perish by the hand of Saul. He is out of hope here. He is out of energy for the journey. He is out of, uh, of the strength that it takes to continue living in the wilderness on the run from Saul. So he at least suspects that what we heard from Saul at the end of chapter 26, which sounded like repentance, it sounded like confession. I have made a great mistake. I have sinned. Return, I will do you no harm. That's what Saul said to David at the end of that chapter. It seems as though David at least is suspicious of Saul's uh, motivation in that or the sincerity uh, of that confession. So he is in a place of despair. And the word he uses there when he says that he will perish by the hand of Saul is the Hebrew safa, which is the same word that he had just used of Saul in chapter 26, verse 10, where he was speaking to Abishai, who had been saying, let me go get a spear and pin him to the ground. David said, let's leave it to God, right? Because his day will come. So verse 10 and 26, he said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into, the, into battle and Safa, same word, like to be swept away. And so now in chapter 27, verse 1, David is applying that same word that he'd been thinking Saul will one day be swept away in battle, and he's convinced that is his destiny. I will surely be swept away by Saul. God seems to David very distant. God seems silent, and I think perhaps we can identify with that feeling, with that sense that God is distant, that things are so hard, it's difficult to look beyond the fog of circumstances to see the presence and power and peace of God. God is there all along. God is working all along. God has not forgotten but it at times can feel that way, and David certainly feels that way. In fact, God does not appear explicitly in this chapter at all. God is not named. We have no dialogue recorded from God. There's no mention of David seeking God, asking anything of God. God is, is conspicuously absent from chapter 27 which is a little bit of a, of a not a parable, but a, but a picture, an analogy of, down, of David's downward gaze. His eyes are so fixed on his troubles that he has forgotten to look for God. All he can see are his burdens, and God seems nowhere to be found. And perhaps, maybe not all because, but certainly aided by the fact that he is speaking to his heart Words of despair, words of fear. There's no way this is going to turn out for good. 
This situation could never be redeemed. This relationship could never be repaired. Perhaps you can identify with that kind of despair. And I think we should learn from this that we ought to take great care what we say to our hearts. We speak to our hearts, sometimes even when we're not aware of it. We ought to be proactive, intentional about speaking to our hearts. What, what kind of message are we giving to ourselves? What kind of preaching are we doing to our own souls? Be careful that what you're saying is true and Godward. It's very easy to speak circumstance, to speak fear, to speak despair. And if that's all my heart is hearing, that's what my heart is going to believe. So I need to be careful to speak truth about God and about the gospel to my heart. If what you speak to your heart is full of circumstances and weaknesses and it's void of God's presence and care, you are sure to succumb to fits of doubt and fear just like David does here. I think we'd do better to follow David's example not in 1 Samuel 27, but in Psalm 42, where he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I do, do, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? So he says again, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The trial is real. The burden is real. The danger is real. But in the midst of it, He's reminding himself, God is my salvation. God is my hope. So let's follow that example. Let's put our eyes on God in the midst of our hardships and tell our hearts true things about who God is, about his love and care for us, about what he has accomplished for us in Christ, what is ours. So David is in this despairing place, and he makes a risky decision to say the least, as we just heard him say, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? The enemies of God's people. They, in fact, they've been the most uh, obvious and persistent of the enemies of God's people throughout the book of 1 Samuel as they've come against them in battle and David himself has courageously led in battle against the Philistines. So now he's going to go and live among them. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. So let's look what happens next. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. We'll pause right there for a minute. So David goes to Gath to take up residence in Goliath's hometown. 
Remember the giant that he struck down in chapter 17? He's Goliath of Gath. This is his hometown. And he essentially makes himself an ally of King Achish, the, the, the political leader, ruler of the city of Gath, one of the great five cities of Philistia. And you might remember that David has recently had an encounter with Achish back in chapter 21. He was alone and despairing, and he had the sword of Goliath in his hand, and he went into Gath. And Achish's men immediately recognized him. Isn't this David, the one of whom it is said Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? And they seized him. They took him into custody. And the way that David sort of got himself out of that trouble, really the way that God got him out of that trouble, was that he pretended to be insane. He was marking on doors and let spit run all over his beard and acted like a crazy person. And Achish said, do I have a shortage of madmen that you've brought me another one? Get him out of here, right? And so David escaped from the custody of the Philistines in chapter 21 in that way. So he gets a different reception this time. This time he has an army. It's small, about 600 men, we're told. And he's got families, his own family, the families of the men that compose his army. Obviously, their belongings. And he more or less offers his services. He goes to Gath and says, basically, let me live here. Let me serve you. And so Achish uh, probably sees David and his army as useful at this point. He's not just a raving madman who's wandering through his, his city. He's a guy with a force. He's got a militia that could be used for their purposes. It's also probably well known by this point that David and Saul are at odds with each other, right? So the feud between Saul and David has probably reached Gath by this point. And so in, when Achish sees David and his army come to him, he probably thinks... David is so defected, if you will, from Israel and is so utterly opposed now to Saul and, and to the nation of Israel that he's seeking to ally himself with us. And so Achish welcomes him. Achish receives him. And so they take up residence in the city of Gath with Achish. And apparently, at least on the surface, David's strategy works. Look at verse 4. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now that tells us that Saul's confession and his promise at the end of 26, I won't do you any more harm, was obviously only surface deep. Uh, and, and he had been seeking David once again. So when he finds out that he's now with the Philistines, the main and most powerful enemies of Israel, now he stops. Okay. I'm not going to go try to fight him in Philistia because that would be inviting too much trouble upon ourselves. And so it works in a way. Saul gives up pursuit. But we might ask, at what cost? Yes, his strategy works, but what is it going to cost? And I think we'll see that as the story unfolds. David goes back uh, and requests a country home, if you will. Look at verse 5. David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, 
Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So David requests a a, a place for him and his family and his army away from the sort of the city life of Gath. Give me a place that's somewhere out in the country within your territory that I might stay there. And so Achish grants him that request and gives to him the town of Ziklag. Now Ziklag is near the southern border of Judah in Israel. So it's northern Philistia very close to the southern border of Judah. And so we can see immediately some strategic uh, purposes, perhaps, for David dwelling there. And he didn't specifically say, give me that place. He just said, send me somewhere into the country. And Ziklag is where Achish gave him. Now, in fact, this is a fulfillment of one of God's promises to Israel. Back in Joshua 19.5, when he had been telling Joshua, you will go into the land of Canaan and conquer the peoples and settle the land, he listed which cities he would give to each tribe of Israel. And Ziklag was listed in Joshua 19.5 as one of the cities that would belong to Judah. Now Israel, we know, never really completed the work of driving out or killing all of the Canaanites, the pagan peoples who were worshipers of other gods. And so many of these peoples have continued to live and dwell in the land to this day, including the Philistines. So now the city of Ziklag is gifted to David by the Philistine king Achish in fulfillment of his promise back in Joshua that Ziklag would belong to Judah. And then the writer here tells us that up until this day, meaning the day of the writing of this book, not 2019, uh, up to the the writing of this book, that Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah. And so God, even in this roundabout, kind of crazy circumstances, uh, makes good on his word, right, And, and fulfills his promise. And so David and his men spend 16 months with the Philistines. And we learn from 1 Chronicles 12 that his army grows during this period. Uh, Many men from surrounding tribes uh, join his force. They come to him at Ziklag, it tells us. And so his his force grows. We don't know exactly how much it grows, but uh, it's strengthened. There's more people now. And so he's hanging out now in the countryside of Philistia, near the southern border of Judah, and what is he going to do with himself? How is he going to spend his time? And we start to see more of these strange sort of godless, worldly ways of thinking and, and deciding and strategizing on David's part. Look at what he does beginning in verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. From of old, meaning back in the day when Joshua and the people of Israel were first uh, entering the land of Canaan to make conquest. So he's saying, he's telling us that there are peoples living in this area uh, that have been there for a really long time well past when they were supposed to have been there, right? So we're reminded these are Canaanites. These are pagans, if you will, idol worshipers, not worshipers of God. Verse 9, And David would strike the land 
and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeramaelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Now, while he's out living in the country, David is making a habit of attacking these various roving tribes and utterly destroying them. The Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites we've seen before in 1 Samuel. They're, they're one of the persistent and powerful enemies of God's people. They're ruthless. Uh, they're the ones who would gouge out the right eye of all of their prisoners. Um, we saw that back in chapter 4 and 5. And so we've seen the Amalekites. We know that these guys are godless fools. Uh, we don't know as much about the other groups, the Geshurites and the Gerzites, but it's clear enough that all of these peoples are not Israelites, and they're in fact these, these pagan uh, idol worshipers from the days of conquest back in the time of Joshua. And so they're these Gentile dwellers in the land of Canaan. And so perhaps David rationalizes his unnecessary brutality against these groups by telling himself that he's doing the work of God, right? Because he is brutal. He attacks these tribes, and it says twice to us that he leaves neither man nor woman alive. He destroys them all and takes their stuff, right? The spoils he takes back, and some of them he apparently brings to Achish, probably kind of like a tax. If I'm going to live in your place, I've got to bring you uh, the, the, so a portion of the spoils of all my various raids. And so perhaps he tells himself, well, these are the enemies of God's people anyway, so I'm helping. I'm doing God's work. I'm helping out uh, the, the, the people of Israel by getting rid of these tribes of people. And in one sense, I guess he'd be correct because we know that the job of the king of Israel is to defend the nation against her enemies. And surely these Canaanites could be seen as such, especially the Malachites. We know a little bit about them. But David's reasoning for leaving neither man nor woman alive, given to us in verse 11, has nothing to do with protecting Israel from her enemies or with uh, fulfilling his role of king to which he's been anointed. Look again at verse 11, what's going on in his mind. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Because, what's he telling Achish? He's lying to Achish about who he's attacking. So when Achish would say, wow, where'd all this stuff come from? Where'd you get your spoils today? Who'd you attack today? He gave them these other groups. He said, well, I was attacking the, the Negeb of the Jeremiahites or uh, the Negeb of the Kenites, right? Or the Negeb of Judah. Now, the Negeb is just a big desert region, mostly uninhabitable. Um, so people would travel through there, but didn't usually settle there and live there. So it's vague, it's a little bit like saying, oh, you know, like in the mid-Atlantic, right? So it's like this big region. I was over in the Negev. But then the people he names are either Israelites, Judah, or allies of Israel. 
right? So uh, the Jeramaelites, I know I'm saying that all wrong, and the Kenites. These are tribes that have been allies of and friends of Israel. And so he's telling Achish that he's actually fighting Israel. I'm fighting against Judah, and I'm fighting against Israel's friends. That's where all this stuff is coming from. But what he's really doing is fighting against the enemies of Israel, but lying about it to Achish. So he leaves neither man nor woman alive because somebody might return to Gath and say, David is killing the Amalekites and the Geshurites and the Gerzites, not, the, not Israel and her friends and allies. And so the reason for his excessive violence here is to protect his own skin, right? It, it's so that Ge- the Achish won't find out that he's lying to him about who he's been attacking. So that's the reason that, we ha- that we're given for his take-no-prisoners policy. He doesn't want a survivor of one of his raids to blow his cover with Achish. As one commentator notes, while the pragmatic wisdom of this policy is evident, his behavior is ethically indefensible. And I think he's right. What David is doing is, even if you can make a a, a sort of a strained case for he's doing the work of God or protecting the people of Israel, there is clear excess here. And there's deception and and lying and, and, and this sort of just protecting his own skin in the midst of it. So we need to take careful note, I think, of the, of the dichotomy here. David's actions are politically shrewd. He is at the same time strengthening his bond with the king under whose authority he currently lives, thus securing good standing and relative freedom for himself and his men in the Philistine countryside, and he's securing the southern borders of Judah, right? Subduing Israel's enemies there, before he ascends the throne as king. So in one way of looking at the situation, I would say a worldly way of looking at the situation, what David's doing is pretty smart. It's clever, right? He's he's posturing to help out Israel before he becomes the king there, meanwhile telling a, a kind of a cover story to Achish to stay in the good graces of the king of Gath. It's clever. It's wise in a worldly sort of way. But the same actions that are politically expedient and may even earn him strong support from his base are at the same time morally bankrupt and go against God's wisdom. Of course, we can see the same types of things done in the name of politics in our own day. Sometimes decisions and actions that strengthen the nation in one sense actually chip away at its moral fabric in another sense, right? So what's politically clever or shrewd or expedient is not always morally acceptable or pleasing to God. And so sometimes we can convince our people can convince themselves that we're doing the work of God somehow, all the while ignoring and violating his commands. But let's apply this in a bit more personal way, not just to nations and politics and how we think through things like that. Are we ever guilty of violating God's commands, blurring lines of righteousness and truth, all the while convincing ourselves that we're really serving God? We're really doing something that pleases him. How many lies have we told in the name of avoiding unnecessary offense? How much hateful rhetoric have we spewed in conversations with others, in person or in social media, in the name of standing for truth. 
or tough, showing tough love? How many times have we crossed lines, violated God's commands, and convinced ourselves along the way we're actually doing the work of God? I think it's a trap that we can fall into. David falls into it here, it seems. Now, the upshot of David's violence and treachery is that Achish totally trusts him. Look at verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. He is convinced that David has no remaining loyalty to Israel, given his ongoing feud with Saul and his apparent disdain for these desert Israelite groups, which we know were not really Israelite groups at all, and thereby regards David as his eternal servant. He will always be my servant. And so he is totally duped Achish into thinking that he is on his side, that he is allied with Philistia against Israel and will always be. Well, you wondered when all these questionable decisions of David might come back to bite him. And we find out in verses 1 and 2 of the next chapter. So look at chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh Uh-oh. Now he's in a bit of a pickle, as they might say. David has done such a good job of masquerading as a Philistine loyalist and an enemy of Israel that Achish now enlists his aid in this big military assault on Israel. And in fact, this military assault is so big that it includes all five cities of Philistia. This is a massive front that is going against the nation of Israel. And Achish has now enlisted David in this battle. You will go with me in this fight against Israel. So now David finds himself with a truly distasteful dilemma. Reveal his true loyalty to Israel thereby honoring his anointing by Samuel, his covenant with Jonathan, and the promises of Yahweh concerning his future kingdom, and jeopardize his safety, right? Because if he tells Achish, I'm not going to go fight with you, because I'm actually not against Israel, I'm for Israel, well, where does that leave him and his people with Achish and with the Philistines? Not in a good place, right? Or keep up the ruse of Philistine loyalty, and actually do battle with God's covenant people, actively acting precisely opposite the role of God's anointed king. Instead of then protecting the people of Israel, he would literally be fighting against the people of Israel. So betray himself or betray Yahweh. That's essentially the choice he is forced to handle here. A dilemma that he undoubtedly brought upon himself by his decisions in this chapter. What is he going to do? David's answer to Achish is intentionally ambiguous. He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. A reply that seems to me a close cousin to such gems as, boy, that was really something. 
Or, I didn't think music like that was possible. We don't really know what you mean by that, but it's, it gets the, the pressure off for the time being. He makes precisely no commitment regarding whom he will serve and whom he will attack. Yet Achish gullibly hears these words as a pledge of loyalty and devotion to him and the armies of Gath. When he says, you're coming with me to fight against Israel, he says, you'll see what I can do. Achish thinks, all right, he's in, he's mine all the way. And so he makes him his bodyguard for life. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Meaning, you, David, personally are my personal bodyguard. It's a singular you here. So he is regarding David as his bodyguard. Interesting detail here. The word for bodyguard literally means keeper of my head. So he's saying, David, you are the keeper of my head. If you recall David's encounter with a certain extra tall citizen of Gath back in chapter 17, you'll see a little bit of irony in the title of keeper of his head. Achish doesn't catch the irony, of course. And with that, there's a scene change. And the narrative picks up with Saul in verse 3. We'll get to that next week. We're not going to look at that right now. It's a little bit like a movie. David is in this scene, and the king says, all right, we're going to battle with Israel. And there's a close-up on David going, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then it cuts away. And you're like, what's going to happen? Right? It's, it's intentionally written like a cliffhanger. We have no idea how he's going to get out of this mess. Or perhaps more accurately, how God is going to get David out of this mess that he has created for himself. And we'll look to that in a future text. We're left with this dilemma, this cliffhanger. How will he handle this? Will he put himself in danger? By defying Achish and fighting with Israel? Or will he keep up appearances in Gath and defy the armies of the living God as he had chided Goliath for doing just months before? That's what he'd be doing if he fought against Israel, defying the armies of the living God. So he's in a tough situation. And we don't yet know without reading ahead how he's going to handle it. You're welcome, of course, to read ahead, but we're not going to get there today. So let, let me break uh, or, or pull out a few observations, things that I think we can learn for ourselves and our own relationship with God from this chapter, this chapter that does not name God, in which we do not hear from God. What, what do we learn here? I think we learn something about decision-making. Sometimes the line between wisdom and unbelief feels perilously, perilously thin. In David's situation here, is it wise to put myself in a situation where Saul is going to be is going to give up? So if I go to Philistia and ally myself with them, that will remove this threat from Saul. Is that wise, or is it faithless? Right. Well, if you really trust God, why would not just stay where you are or go back into the land of Israel and trust that God will continue delivering you as he has over and over and over again? The last like 10 chapters have been about in 1 Samuel, God just over and over again protecting and providing for David. So is it wise or is it foolish? And sometimes we face decisions like that, don't we? Where it's like it's not clear what's wise versus what is just unbelief. I'm going to do what seems wise because I don't really trust God. Or on the other side, we, we, we make a decision that, that might seem brash or irrational or sort of crazy. 
but it's because we're saying we really trust God. We think that God's going to come through here. So we're going to put ourselves in a situation where God has to come through in order for this to work out. Well, can we say that that person is being foolish because they're acting with sort of without caution? Or is that person really trusting God and being uh, faithful in that sense? And, and I think at times those, it's not easy to see where that falls. The, the line can seem perilously thin between wisdom and unbelief or between faith and foolishness, on the other hand. I think in these cases, we need to seek wisdom, consult God's word, consult God's people, right? Pray, ask for God to give you clear thinking, make a choice, and then trust God's providence, right? Have enough faith in God's sovereignty and his uh, orchestrating of events and the happenings in, in the earth to say, God will work this out, right? Sometimes we're looking for little messages in the clouds or expecting some kind of uh, particular personal revelation to come to us. God, show me exactly what to do. And I don't think we usually get that. That's going to be real honest with you. I don't think God usually works that way. Usually he wants you to seek wisdom, make a choice, and trust his providence. We don't have the next chapters of our lives written out to consult. But we know the one who's writing the story. And we can trust him to handle the twists and turns and the dark alleys that our journeys sometimes lead us through. So I think we can learn something about decision making. I think we learn something about consequences here. As we see David making these, uh, these sort of strange, wise in a worldly sense, but not very godly kinds of decisions. And then it leads him to this really unpleasant dilemma, uh, this really difficult situation. And I think we learn our choices have implications in the real world, often unpredictable, often unforeseen. Don't be terribly surprised, David, when your decision to live with the Philistines forces you to be allied with them against your own people. He shouldn't be terribly shocked to find himself in that situation. In the same way, for us, if you choose to gossip and slander, don't be surprised when it comes back to bite you later. If you choose to violate God's command regarding sexuality and the purity of the marriage bed, don't be surprised when relationships break down and life gets messy. If you choose to persist in secret sin, don't be surprised when it comes to light and you have to face those you've been hiding from who now know the truth. Our choices have consequences. The way the Bible phrases that is this, you reap what you sow. Wisdom says make righteous choices and you'll avoid many pitfalls and snares in life. You can't avoid all danger. You can't avoid all hardship. You can't avoid all pain and suffering. We know that's a part of what it means to live in a fallen world and to be a follower of Jesus who suffered more than anyone. So it's not as though we're going to avoid all suffering. But there are things to learn about wisdom and about recognizing that the choices we make play out in real life. And when we find ourselves in unpleasant circumstances that are the consequences of our own sinful decisions, we shouldn't rail against everyone around us and blame all the other people. It's their fault. Look at the mess I'm in. We need to look inward. No, this is a result of my choices. And the final thing I want to point out is that we learned something about enduring temptation. Enduring temptation. David was under tremendous pressure with Saul's unrelenting pursuit 
the challenges of living on the run in the wilderness, the seemingly endless waiting for God's purposes to come to pass. And in the midst of that pressure, his faith buckled, and he gave in to worldly thinking and made his own way. That's what we see David doing in chapter 27. It's, a, it's David at the most sort of godless that we've seen him to this point. Just with, without thinking about God or what he wants, without consulting a priest or, uh, or, or trying to, to get guidance from, from God on what to do. He's just in despair and he's strategizing and plotting and doing his, his own thing. He buckled under all this pressure. It's right for us to acknowledge the sin and weakness of David in this matter. But we should be careful not to be too harsh a judge because we're all guilty of the same failure of faith, the same buckling under pressure, the same surrender to temptation at different times. In fact, there's only one who hasn't buckled under pressure and caved in to temptation. We don't look for hope to David, but to David's descendant, the anointed of the Lord who would come from his family about a thousand years down the line. The one of whom it was said in Hebrews 12, 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Guess what? Jesus did. The reason Jesus Christ was able to bear our penalty on the cross is because he resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood. He never caved. He never gave in. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it's because of his resistance to sin and his perfect obedience that the next verse in Hebrews 4 exhorts us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and receive grace to help in time of need. Christ has endured all of the pressure and the temptation that we could ever imagine facing. And he withstood it. He made it through the temptation. And he shed his blood for us so that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, there's going to be times of weariness. There's going to be seasons of faint-heartedness. There's going to be circumstances that seem more than we can bear. And in those times... We need to draw near with confidence to Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's there. He's offered it to us. He's provided it to us in Jesus Christ. If we'll simply place our trust in him, if we'll simply speak to our heart the truth about who God is for us in Christ, those resources are available. Those resources are ours. So let's keep our eyes on Christ who endured such torment and pressure and temptation that we might find his mercy and grace in our time of need.